I, I did walk 500 miles shortly after moving to Montana from Colorado in uh, the well, 1987. I decided I really want to know what my backyard consists of. And I was on the corner of Yellowstone, the northeast corner. And so I launched this 500 mile walk. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. Looking around at the world today, a world of skyscrapers, superhighways, melting ice caps, and rampant deforestation, it is easy to feel that humanity has actively severed its ties with nature. It is no wonder that we are starving to rediscover a connection with the natural world. These words were written by my guest today. His name is Gary Ferguson. Gary has written 27 books on science and nature, including the book which I ask him a lot about in this interview, a book called The Eight Master Lessons of Nature, What Nature Teaches Us About Living Well in the World. And I also asked Gary to tell me about his most recent book, one called Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World. Gary has created an organization called Full Ecology with a cultural psychologist named Mary Claire, who is not only his co-founder and partner, but his wife, and he describes full ecology as an idea and an organization dedicated to breaking down the walls between the human psyche and the natural world. Together, he and Mary Claire offer workshops, retreats, keynotes, and continuing professional development to help individuals, families, and organizations traverse life's changes with integrity and vision. I was really interested to talk to Gary because many years ago, I did a program with a teacher who's been very important to me, someone named Jack Canfield. And in that program, I created a life purpose for myself. And in that life purpose, there was a statement that seemed to come out of nowhere to me. It was a surprise even to myself about the importance of a verdant world, about a green and living world. I didn't know, like I said, exactly where that came from or what to make of it. But I suspect that I, like you, yearn for, enjoy, appreciate being in nature, connecting with nature, but also feeling somehow separate from it. So this interview and these books that Gary has written are a really great opportunity, I hope, for you to learn a little bit more about how to renew your relationship with nature, how to deepen it. In this conversation, we talk about a lot of things, including the many, 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 many hundreds and thousands of miles even that Gary has spent in Yellowstone National Park, what he has learned in that. We talk about beauty. We talk about community. We talk about relationship. We talk about grief. Uh, we talk about mystery. So a lot of big concepts and Gary puts them in ways that are both beautiful and practical in his writing. And I think in this conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. You can learn more about Gary and his work at wildwords.net or at fullecology.com. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Gary Ferguson. Gary, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thank you, Brilliant. It's, it's great to be here with you. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? Oh, my goodness. Well, I would say that, and I'm basing this on my experience in the natural world and thinking and writing about the natural world, I think, I think life is about relationship. Um, 
and I think even even writing is about relationship. It's either the um, celebrating or <clears throat> building or mourning the loss of relationship. And and I think I think that is really the 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 stage I stand on when I think about going through my life. Mm. And I realize that however one answers that question, inevitably it's one's life experience that informs their their response so much. And uh, I want to. I want to start with uh, an experience that you've written about. You were 13 years old. You were at home in Northern Indiana. You had a box of highway maps and $150 you'd earned from shoveling snow. And outside yeah. is your bicycle of purple seer string stingray. What's going on in this moment and what happens immediately afterward? Well, when I was about nine, so several years earlier, uh, my parents had given me money to go into, a, I think it was a Walgreens pharmacy to get a comic book, which you know, I did every so often. But I got to the pharmacy and I went to the magazine stand and instead of the comic books, uh, my eyes landed on a on a magazine called Colorado Rocky Mountain West. And it was just stuffed full of beautiful photos of, of the Rocky Mountain states. And I was living in a very topographically challenged uh, area of the world, northern Indiana, the, the so-called Rust Belt at, at that time. And I was so struck and felt so at home and in kinship with what I was saying in those pages, I, I decided that one way or another I was going to get there. So with the money and the maps and everything, I proceeded to call my parents uh, to the couch in the living room and lay out my maps and and describe this grand plan I, I had for that summer to ride my purple Sears Stingray about 1,200 miles to the, uh, the front range of Colorado and assured them that I could be back in time for school to start uh, in the fall after Labor Day. And 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 inexplicably, they they said, no, um, I, I, I wasn't <laughs> going to do that. So I'm I still have some hard feelings about that, but I, 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 I sort of get their concerns now that I'm a little older, but I was just very, very driven to get, get to that level of, of wildness. Wow. And, uh, you know, I think of the, the John Muir saying, right, the mountains are calling and I must go. Oh, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> you've heard yes. that call and you've, you've heeded it. And in your book, the eight master lessons of nature, what nature teaches us about living well in the world. You cover so much. And I love this book, by the way. Thank you for writing it. It's very Thank beautiful. You. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that, um, that I want to ask you about is that you, you say in this book that nature has a special place in our brains and our relationships. And I'm curious if you'll say a little more about that generally, but then more specifically for yourself, what's the place that nature has played or continues to play in your life? Well, like so many kids and, and, and perhaps all kids, if given the chance, when I was young, even though I was in that fairly developed, um, well-ordered uh, place called Northern Indiana with its topographical challenges and whatnot, I still was drawn into nature, whether it was the hedgerows along the cornfields or the, the ditches along the, the roads I used to ride that purple stingray on uh, filled with cattails or even my mother's little postage stamp size garden. Um, just spotting nature tends to pull us uh, into it. And, and Emerson said that one of the reasons we're so attracted is because the same power that we're seeing is in our eyes looking out at itself, basically, that, that, that we're connected and we recognize something of that in ourselves. And 
I, I think that makes, you know, just from a biological standpoint, of, of course, that's true. We are nature, too. We're the end result of lots and lots, although not that there isn't more evolution to come. But we're the, at the end of, of a lot of millions of years of fine tuning, just like a, a mountain lion or a wolf or an orca or a dolphin. And, and we have some some essential skills that we share with the natural world. Um, the superpowers of nature, what make it able to not just survive, but thrive are our superpowers too. And one of the things that I've tried to devote my life personally and some of my writing to as well is this notion of, of kind of restoring and healing that artificial split that um, has been going on off and on, certainly for the last 500 years since basically the enlightenment in the 1600s. Um, it's not that objectifying things doesn't lead to certain truths and we can study things and develop technologies by virtue of it, but it's really not the essential platform of how life works on earth. And so that's what I've been about is exploring that and, and healing that, that artificial divide. Mm. Yeah. And there's something exactly that I wanted to ask you more about, which is you talk about the objective case in this book. And I wonder if you'd be willing to say what that is and what, what effect it continues to have in our world today? Yeah, I'll go back to the to that enlightenment, the 1600s, the birth of modern science, which, again, was a wonderful thing. It gave us a set of tools by which we can understand the world and develop everything from blue jeans to rocket ships to great medical breakthroughs. So I, I'm not dissing that particular way of seeing the world, but it was predicated on understanding the world as as a collection of things, of parts. And if you were a scientist, and to some extent, this is very true still today, depending on the kind of science you do, um, you want to isolate that thing you're studying and minimize the impacts and effects of everything that's in context. So if you were studying a bird, you'd want to minimize the effect of the tree. You'd want to minimize the weather, the insect population. You'd, you'd want to zero in on that bird and find its essential truths. That's very useful, but it's also so artificially limited as far as what really goes on. Um, I, I'm very heartened by modern science and biology, especially because the cutting edge now is really less about proving that life is evolving by virtue of those those classic physical laws that Newton and Descartes and Bacon came up with and were so good at applying through mathematics. It's more about thinking, wow, a lot of what goes on in the world, maybe even more of what goes on in the world has to do with processes and chaos theory and quantum mechanics and uh, interrelatedness that is just staggering in its complexity and its ability to uh, improvise. And so it, it's an exciting time. And I think that that objectification that we learned so well that got transferred into virtually every institution, educational, government, whatever, um, we're, has, have, has led us to become uh, sort of feeling like I'm an isolated thing in a world of other isolated things. And it's a very lonely place to be. And more significant to your question, I think, is the fact that once you hold something out as uh, other for purposes of study, it certainly opens up and has opened up, uh, opening up entire groups of people, people who don't look like you, people who don't think like you, whether it's religion or race or sexual uh, orientation, whatever it happens to be, th there's an objectification uh, tendency that's, that's really quite entrenched in us right now. And it has um, horrific uh, consequences 
the biggest one to me being the elimination of the very diversity that nature teaches us is essential for people and, and every creature on earth to actually thrive uh, uh, on planet earth. Yeah. <clears throat> no, I'm, I'm with you there. And I once heard a woman, um, you probably crossed paths with Julia Butterfly Hill. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I heard her say, you know, we talk about throwing things away, but there is no away. <laughs> right. And how I think that speaks to this sense of division or separation that we live with. And science, I think, is guilty of it if guilt is a factor. But I think so is our natural you know, system of commerce where this is my home and I have the deed to prove it. And, you know, this is my right. line and like all of these things. And it's very different, right? Worldview from say indigenous worldviews in, uh, in some pretty significant ways. And, and that's something also that you talk about in this book, um, an experience you had with an Ojibwa woman told you a story. It was a storyteller, uh, it helped you understand not only the power of stories, but as I understand it also, the relationship that uh, can be created or maybe made visible through a story. I wonder if this is a useful place to go in our, our conversation about, and I'm always kind of skeptical to do this because I don't want to hold up another culture as like the ideal and it's the answer and we're all wrong or anything like that. But, yeah. but what in your travels and in your studies, you've learned that maybe we're remembering or we could, we could benefit from, when it comes to indigenous wisdom. Yeah. Amelia Lagarde is the elderly Ojibwe woman who I spent time with in the Duluth area. And she certainly reminded me as had other indigenous storytellers that when it came time to deal with a crisis in the community, for instance, if, uh, if there was a teenager who was getting into all sorts of, of trouble, um, they didn't ground the teenager or spank the teenager. They sent the teenager to the storyteller. And the storyteller would tell a tale that included characters going through things that might be very similar to what that, maybe animal people characters, very similar to what that particular young uh, girl or boy was going through. And through that identification and through the power of story, um, that uh, young person was able to find maybe a light that would guide their way through that difficult time. The story that uh, I mentioned in the book that she told me was one called When Butterflies Taught Children to Walk. And it's really about the power of beauty. And she said, when I was leaving her, if you tell that story, and she said, I hope you will, just keep in mind that we don't tell that story to remind us of one of the obvious themes in the story is that um, you don't want to give children everything. You don't want to lay it in their lap. They have to reach and struggle and strive for what they what they want. That's how they grow. She said, we get that. We don't tell it for that, but we tell it because when we're in pain and when we're suffering loss and when we're in the midst of grief, sometimes we forget that beauty really will help us get through that and lead us to the other side. And so th those stories, and we are all story loving and story story inhabiting people uh, and, and whether or not we're able to react to a, a, a major crisis like climate change will depend not just on the technology, but the technology itself will be developed and, and energized by virtue of the stories that we're telling about our relationship with the earth. Mm. Ah, that's beautiful. And that whole view of beauty is what will help us heal or maybe, I don't know that, I don't know what the term is, you know, to deal with grief, 
is such a such a beautiful perspective and one that I, had never occurred to me. And I've been touched to understand a bit of your story that you're no stranger to grief. And I think that's, I suspect that's part of what helps you to be such an effective communicator. Maybe there's an empathy or a compassion that you have just with people you've never even met people, you know, that you don't know who will read the words you're sending out into the world. But what have you learned? What have you learned about grief? Yes, I'm I'm thinking of this line by Stanley Kunitz, the poet, that uh, how will the heart, he said, how will the heart reconcile itself to this feast of losses? And and, and that's really um, what life includes. It's not all life includes, uh, but all of us have either been in grief, are in grief, or will be in grief over over something in the future. One of my biggest um, tragedies in my life was to lose my wife of 25 years when we were in a, a, a terrible canoeing accident up in uh, Ontario on the Kafka River. And interestingly, she had requested many years before and then reminded me of it, oddly, just a couple of days before she died, that if something ever happened to her, she wanted her ashes scattered in her favorite places, her favorite wild places, five different places. And so that was a great gift to me because after her death in that, in that horrible, dark uh, place that, that seems eternal uh, in, in those moments, she, through that request, got me out into those places, into those wild places with all the lessons of beauty and other things that they held so that the wheel of grief kept turning uh, in me. I, I kept moving forward. It wasn't linear. There were some days that were, you know, back steps. But the fact of the matter is what I learned about grief in that experience is something that Storytellers like Amelia Lagarde reminded me uh, about as well. And that's that across thousands of years of storytelling, we see three qualities, uh, mostly identified with nature, that keep showing up. And the storytellers are basically saying, if you want to live well in the world, you must maintain relationships with these three qualities. And a lot of the stories are absolutely about those one or more of those three qualities. So one of those qualities we've already talked about is beauty. Um, the other quality uh, that I found in nature when I was out doing these scatterings was, was community. The, the, the fact that there aren't those individual isolated things. There is only the only the community. There is no tree. There was no animal that would exist without it being held in that web of community. And the third thing is mystery, that you, you need to have a relationship with the mysterious. I, I love that of all people, Albert Einstein once said to his students, and he said this to his students actually on many occasions, he said, if you have a choice between knowledge and mystery, choose mystery. It will serve you far better. And, you know, that, that really took me aback, given the, the size of his left brain intellectual capacity. He still felt that mystery was essential to um, having a sense of uh, potential in the world, of being present and having that wonder that opens up in us as children still be present and potentially open up for us as adults. So those are the three things that I was those qualities are what I was reminded of when dealing with that grief. And I think those three qualities got me through. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. 
Um, I was very touched. I don't, I don't remember who you were speaking to, but I, I found a video on YouTube of you sharing that story of your canoeing and, and how you were lucky to survive and the, and the story of the loss of your wife. And I was deeply touched and I'm for what it's worth. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you, Brian. I, I appreciate that, that that very much. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't wish it on anyone. And yet, like I said, we all um, must navigate. Uh, and, you know, this is one thing I think in our culture that we're probably not particularly good at, and that's grief. And this is really showing up even when it comes to talking about and trying to come up with solutions for something like climate change. It's, it's perceived as a, as a, as a bummer. And I, and I feel so guilty that we've done this to the planet. Yes. Yes. And those, those feelings need to be held up. They need to be embraced and they need to be moved through. Um, and, and pretending that the situation isn't there because we're uncomfortable with the grief that that processing will involve um, is, is slowing us down terribly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you're right about, you know, we don't necessarily know, like what to do with it or how to be with grief. But I think that's just a, a subset of, I think when it comes to emotions, when it comes to feelings that we don't have a deep understanding or vocabulary for, you know, these kinds of things and we're learning, you know, I think we're yeah. pain uh, awakens us to some degree. And uh, I think we're going through that. And um, I do want to talk to you more about climate change. And I realize full ecology is a big, big, big part of your work now. Uh, before we go there, though, just maybe on the topic of relationships I, and renewal, perhaps, mm -hmm. I was deeply uh, moved by what you wrote about wildfires. And I really, really appreciate what you said about how relationships, I don't know exactly how you worded it. So maybe you can, you can share it with me now, if, if you remember, uh, about when we don't address kind of the smaller uh, things that can burn. <laughs> I don't know how to yeah. say that. Yeah, that it can become a big conflagration in our relationship. So there's, first of all, there's a beauty in nature, how it has this renewal. And then there's a, I think a relationship to our relationships that's useful and all of that in the background. I do want to ask you about Yellowstone and I understand you did a 500 mile walk around and probably spent a lot more time and we're there for the reintroduction of the wolves. So yeah. man, there's so many places, but maybe we can start with just Yellowstone if that's okay. Sure. And, and, and to respond to your, your fire um, question, of course, here again, we're back to us being storytelling creatures because we're reaching for metaphors in what's going on in the world around us and trying to use them to, to build steps to where we're going. And so for me, and I have written uh, about wildfires quite a bit, one of the reasons we're in such dire straits um, of climate change is a big part of it, but also because we've allowed the fuel load through the suppression of fires for about 70 years, beginning in the, around 1920, to build up to the point that um, instead of these stand maintenance fires, which were really quite mellow by comparison of what we often see today, but that were necessary to burn through and return those um, dead branches and dead trees to the soil in the Intermountain West, especially the only re the only way biomass or the primary way biomass returns to the soil and returns the nutrients to the soil to grow the next forest is because of fire. We don't have the kind of microorganisms um, to the degree that a wetter place does in the Northeast or the Northwest. So fire is a big part of returning that biomass and returning the nutrient potential. So we let all of that, that 
thinking fire was the enemy and fire was bad, we launched a really quite literally a war against wildfire and we we put out everything and that allowed these things to build up. And in that sense, yes, I see a, a metaphor that's useful to relationships, whether it's friendships or intimate relationships is, you know, are, are we are we processing? Are we are we taking the the the, the stuff that's laying on the floor that needs to be addressed and returned uh, as a nutrient to the soil? Are we are we processing that? Or are we just pretending and hoping that, you know, everything will work out on its own? The other thing about fires that I apply to, I think, human relationships routinely is the fact that when nature is disturbed and wildfire can, especially with the mega fires, which are fires over 100,000 acres, it's a huge disturbance. How the forest recovers in the face of a wildfire depends on two things. One, does the forest itself have ways of blunting the major impact of the trauma? And again, we could ask ourselves with this in our relationships. So a ponderosa pine, for instance, you, you can see as they get bigger, they drop their lower limbs. So sometimes there aren't any limbs for the first 15 to 30 feet. That's so that the fire flames don't climb the ladder of those limbs and crown out the tree and kill the tree. They've got very thick bark that protects them. So uh, uh, lodgepole pine has serotonous cones that only open in the presence of fire, about 20% of the cones on a given tree only open in the presence of fire. So there's been a way to evolve in such uh, a method that it protects you from the blunt force of the trauma. The second thing to keep in mind about the recovery is whether or not that plant community has the basics that it needs to get started again protect it. In other words, that could be the seeds in the soil, the roots of the aspen that will, you know, th throw up new aspen sprouts, all the microbes in the, in the soil that make nutrients available uh, are the pollinators nearby. So they can come back when the first plants uh, emerge to pollinate them again. So those two things are, are, I think, worth considering in life as well. What have we got in place that will protect us or keep us healthy in the face of great disruption to protect us from the blunt trauma? And secondly, what have we got as far as networks, community networks that will allow us to recover after we feel the disruption? And, and I certainly got to see how that played out when, when Jane died, uh, my, my wife, uh, in the canoe a accident. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. that it, yeah, it is wonderful. And when we can look at a natural system, or any natural thing and see something in ourselves, which I think goes back. I get pretty philosophical pretty quickly, but just like you said, we're just, we're looking out at ourselves. And yet for some reason, we often separate ourselves from it or maybe hold ourselves above yes. I that because I think, you know, again, to go to the indigenous perspective, I think of looking at animals, even animals as our kin, that any human who's been alone face to face in close proximity with something like an elk <laughs> or a shark or a bear knows they are in no way <laughs> above that humility is, is suddenly within reach. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it. I love that. So, yeah. And then with Yellowstone, I mean, what a special place. Um, maybe, maybe you could talk about what, what was your, what was this? Did you really walk 500 miles around the park? I did walk 500 miles shortly after moving to Montana from Colorado in uh, the well, 1987. I decided I really want to know 
what my backyard consists of. And I was on the corner of Yellowstone, the northeast corner. And so I launched this 500 mile walk. Later for National Geographic, I would walk uh, about 145 miles from my home to the most so-called most remote place left in the lower 48, which was an extreme southeast Yellowstone, live there for three months and then hike out. And then scattering uh, Jane's ashes, one of the places she wanted to be scattered was in Yellowstone, where she worked as a, um, an environmental educator with kids. And so that was another trip of uh, about 130, 140 miles. So I put in, I, I think, about 15,000 miles in Yellowstone over, over the years. And uh, it, it calls me. Um, it is to this day, the, the ecosystem as a whole, not just the park, the largest generally intact ecosystem left in the temperate world. It has its full complement of historic species, especially with the return of the wolf. Uh, and so there is a scientists would say it's a baseline for how things can work for the capacity that a system has to, to live if it's not overly messed with uh, by, by uh, interference by, from humans. And to me, though, it's a it's an opportunity, not just with the elk and the bear to get that humility, but just to get quiet and, and to learn. You know, there, there's a wonderful bit of research psychologists have done that talks about uh, soft fascination and soft fascination is a state of mind. Um, and they can measure it uh, with electrical impulses that we get into uh, when we're in a place that we find enchanting or beautiful. And so nature fills that bill. And it it's uh, been noted that um, cortisol levels tend to um, go down uh, during periods of soft fascination. Heart rate slows, blood pressure goes down, um, tendency to ruminate, which is in the frontal cortex of the brain, uh, eases off. And it's so powerful that they've found for um, like corporate teams, if they go in and can do these experiences where they have two or three days in, in wild settings, they come back and, and, and engage in creative endeavors. And, and wow, they're so much better at doing that. And part of the reason they're doing it is because of the uh, um, neurochemical changes that are going on in their brain because of that soft fascination. It sounds a little bit like what I've learned of the flow state. You know, oh, some, those, uh -huh. you know, those things. And, and then it reminds me as well, when you talk about that, there are physical changes that occur within us. Um, some study I've read about, about patients that either had a view of a brick, you know, patients in a hospital convalescing who either had a view of a brick window or greenery Yes, and nothing, nothing else was materially changed except what they could see out the window. And those with a view of something natural recovered quicker. Yes. Yes. Pretty In fact, some some researchers now are saying that <clears throat> actually your your longevity is to some extent influenced by how accessible either visually or being out in in some sort of green space. It could be in the city. But if you were completely cut off from trees and other things, it seems to have enough of a serious physical impact that it, it will reduce your longevity. Of course, that's a very tricky thing to tease out, but there's strong evidence that that's the case. Yeah. There's so many, so many things I want to ask about. I want to ask about, you know, on this with wilderness therapy, I want to ask about for anyone who's interested to go, what I think would be called backcountry in Yellowstone, what they need to know. Um, <laughs> I want to ask about clock time versus physical time. And, and probably in those 15,000 miles, plus all your years outside, what you've learned about that, that might improve the quality of our lives. So, but we can go anywhere. What, what makes sense to you to talk about? Well, you mentioned wilderness therapy, and I and I, I I'd love to 
to talk about that for a little bit, because out of 27 books I've written at this point, that one, um, I wouldn't necessarily choose it as my most literary, but for me, the experience was the most powerful. And it influenced my life in ways that um, are still amazing to me. And when I say wilderness therapy, I'm talking about compassion-based, influence-based programs. And and the one I spent several months in uh, working with kids was for 14 to 17-year-olds who had been really struggling with massive drug addictions, uh, suicidal tendencies. Um, They were really at the end of the road. Um, Their parents were thinking that they may not be alive if they didn't get some useful intervention. They were veterans of all kinds of therapy and nothing worked. So they came to an eight-week wilderness therapy program, again, kind, influence-based, not a military structure, which doesn't work at all. And, And what was amazing to me is I could see the wilderness healing me from all kinds of trauma. Um, But I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there since I was nine years old, as I said. It was uncanny to me when I read that according to research for good wilderness therapy programs, the recidivism rate in drug addiction was a third of what it was in standard 28-day lockdown facilities. So these young people were having successes in the wilderness, and they didn't necessarily want to be there at all. The vast majority, if they could have picked the, any place to be for therapy, walking out into the wilderness with a makeshift pack on their back and living on the trail for eight weeks would have been the last place they wanted to be. And yet, in part because of the the kind therapy that was going on, but because of their relationship, they were able to build with the natural world. I, I, I saw them transform in ways that was just stunning in, in, in the sense that they finally began to see what was unique and powerful about themselves. And then through that experience with those other young people in the wilderness, they found what of that unique power was a gift they could give to the larger community. And I followed nine of those 12 kids who I spent time with for a year. And then I got in touch with, um, I I followed 12 and then I got in touch with nine of those 12, 10 years later. And when I asked them, how come this worked so well, you know, you tried all this other stuff and, 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 and this worked, even though you weren't all that excited to be in the wilderness at all. Lo and behold, the three answers they gave most commonly, first place where I ever was, where what I did mattered. So it really mattered how comfortable the group was based on what I did. There's community. It was the first place I had ever been in the presence of something truly beautiful, which I thought was somewhat tragic for a 16 or 17 year old to say. And the third thing was, it was the first time I ever felt like I was part of something bigger than myself. And some use the word God, some said creator, some said great spirit. So there's beauty, there's community, there's mystery um, all over again, coming home by virtue of the day-to-day, astonishingly satisfying experience, difficult experience, but satisfying experience that these kids had in the natural world. And and I walked out of that and, and I'm still in touch with some of those kids. And every day I um, am reminded uh, in, in, in the face of all kinds of difficult things going on in the world that, that these qualities and these empowerments by virtue of us being in relationship with each other and with the natural world are still available to us um, without fail.
That's remarkable. And yeah, just hearing you, I imagine there will be some people listening to this who are raising kids who are having challenges and they're maybe feeling like they don't know what to do. And maybe they've heard of this or even considered it, but even not like for me, this is the first time I've, I've ever realized that, Oh, they're not, not all wilderness therapy programs are the same. No, <laughs> <So>. no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. not at all. And there, and there are unfortunately perhaps less than there used to be, but unfortunately um, really heavy discipline based, almost boot camp models. And, and, and the, um, the outcome studies from those are, are, are not impressive. And it makes sense because in, in the, in the more influence base, you're identifying your own unique power and how to access that for the benefit of yourself and the group. In the other, you're, you're having somebody sort of yell at you to impose a kind of infrastructure in you about how you should be and how you're coming up short. Th those are very, very different therapeutic processes. Yeah, no doubt. And I have a theory that punishment doesn't work. So I, I agree. Any approach that approximates that is not likely to be effective as far as I can tell. So, well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, okay. Let me, let me turn our conversation then to, to full ecology. Okay. Uh, which by the way, one reviewer on Amazon called the most important book of our times. That's a pretty, pretty strong. Love that guy. <laughs> <laughs> which is pretty amazing. But tell me, um, Let's see. I had one question in particular. Oh, so maybe this is a place to start, but um, I understand that this book is largely about confronting the climate crisis, but of course that's not the only crisis, whether it's deforestation or overfishing or overpopulation or so many other loss of biodiversity, but how can we confront climate crisis or any of these big like existential challenges we're now facing without losing heart? Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great point. Um, part of it is, again, making space for grief. Uh, that, that's going to be part of our journey. But full ecology came in the wake of the eight master lessons of nature, and it's intimately connected to it. I happen to be fortunate enough to be married to a, a very celebrated social scientist by the name of Dr. Mary Claire. And she Besides being in a graduate school at Lewis and Clark College, teaching and preparing therapists and, and, and psychologists and public leaders for 30 years, she also consults with corporations and nonprofits. And what she's really good at is helping people understand that in addition to the essential ecologies out there, you know, we tend to think of ecology as us taking care of the, the planet. Her point is that while that's all well and good, um, we also, if we want that to be successful at all, have to take care of the ecologies that exist inside of us and between us as humans. And she's worked with Yellowstone and, and, and many other places where people just don't tend to think in those terms. It, it's more, you know, I, I, I've got to save I've got to save this place. But you begin by also tending and nourishing and saving, if you will, um, your own truth and your own uh, sense of power and how you interact with other people. So once you've got that in place, then it becomes an ecology that really is quite effective at uh, keeping us from falling into oppressing coworkers, oppressing uh, entire cultures or, or racial groups. It, it keeps us uh, drawing on lessons from nature such as diversity 
within our boardrooms, within our uh, our company lunchrooms, it 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 shows us how those nature lessons do in fact reside in us. Of course, humans express those qualities that nature has in, in their own unique way, but those superpowers, Mary told me, are our superpowers too. Mm. And so if we start focusing on how we are with each other, truly, in addition to how we are with the planet, that's the road forward. And so full ecology um, is, is meant to introduce that idea. Again, it's a, it's a healing of that very artificial divide that we put into place for real 500 years ago that says it's, it's nature over here and, and, and humans over there. I, you know, I, I have to say, brilliant, when I was telling that story earlier about coming to the wilderness after seeing those magazine photos, um, I, too, was living out of a kind of a dichotomy, a binary thinking that, oh, uh, where I'm coming from, it's the rust belt, it's very polluted, it's, you know, I'm going to go to the pristine, I'm going to go to the place that hasn't been soiled and spoiled yet by humans. Well, to some extent, um, I could get away with that illusion for a while, but with things like holes in the ozone and now in the face of climate change, it really is true, as ecofeminists said back in the late 70s, what we do to one part of the whole, we do to all. And so I, I have come to understand that there is no escaping uh, to some more pristine place where these problems aren't affecting us, we're going to have to really uh, restore our connection to the natural world and act as if we were um, dependent on that for, for our well-being. Cause, cause we are, we really are. Yeah. yeah no, you know, that, I think that insight is actually quite profound. And the, I, the first time something like that was introduced to me was um, when I heard Van Jones speak and he oh. talked about the same, it's the same mentality that would take a plastic bottle and just throw it away. That would take um, a kid, you know, who made a mistake and put him in prison for life. And, and like you're saying the things we, it's not isolated. This it's, there's a whole mentality. And of course, in the personal growth world, that saying how you do anything is how you do everything. I think yeah. there's some truth to that, even though it's, a bit cliche. Yeah. So yeah, there's some, there's a lot there, you know, and, and, and one of the things I think that that uh, again, very useful, but extraordinarily limited period of uh, early modern science, that, that objectification, it gave us a very heady and misleading sense of hubris. Um, by controlling parts, we began to believe we got to control reality. We got to control what happened. And, and yeah, we can influence greatly a lot of things. You know, that's how we've applied standard uh, classic physics to, to be able to predict and control. That's what it was about. But there's so much that we have to remain open to reacting in the moment. I mean, that's, that's what nature does. Nature lives in the moment. And so that if some kind of disruption happens, it isn't nature responding so eloquently because it's got plans for that. It right. simply responds to what's going on in any given moment and, and reacts accordingly. And to live at that edge of life, the leading edge of life is a little unsettling when you're used to hiding behind the notion of control, but ultimately it's exhilarating. 
Yeah. And that is right. The essence of what it is to be alive, as far as I can tell, is that responsiveness, that immediacy. There is, I I remember a teacher of mine, a spiritual teacher said, it's always only ever today in the universe. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Never is not this now and later here and there. It's just, and life shows that, right? Yeah. 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 So powerful. And then here we are with our words and our concepts and you know, like all of these ideas that in many ways, I think separate us from that aliveness that's available. Good point. Good point. Well, what, um, I'm just looking at things uh, and, and on that topic, by the way, of life and, and nature, I love what you wrote in the eight master laws that nature doesn't lose energy by virtue of relationship. It gains it. The efficiency of nature is always in service to life, creating life. Yeah. It's, it's really true. And, um, you know, there's, there's no such thing on planet earth as a rugged individual. We love that image in, in, in America, especially rugged individual, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I'm not saying that there isn't some value in the, the, the general notion, but there is no such thing as a rugged individual. We are all in community. And, you know, one of the things that I should mention, we're, we're talking so much about relationship and interdependence. This is something that had we kept the feminine, the archetypal feminine qualities alive as they were four or 5,000 years ago um, through a variety of, of ways that we created theology and so forth. But long, long story short, we ended up pretty much kicking out the, the goddesses that, that uh, were populating a lot of theology and ultimately reducing the, the freedom and the, um, the worth of, of girls and women. So we cut off basically more than half of the world's wisdom by virtue of suppressing and oppressing and objectifying uh, girls and women and cutting ourselves off as men from the archetypal feminine and archetypal feminine refers to energy. I, I, I love Lao Tzu's description is nature feeds and clothes all being without having the need to be master over them. And, and, that, and that's a, a, he was trying to essentially illuminate the feminine quality of, of, of nature. And so to the extent we can actually heal some of those wounds and, and, and men really need to do a lot of the, the, the healing uh, and accept the worth of that relational archetypal feminine energy and certainly protect girls and women better and, and allow equal opportunity for them, then we're also going to, I think, get greatly fortified and much wiser for how to act in the face of any given problem we, we might face in the years to come. Uh, I, I think you're right. And that's well said. So thank you. Well, with that, I know there's so much more that we could talk about uh, and, and more we will talk about, but um, with your permission, I want to go ahead and transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Okay. Well, I'm not sure what that means, but let's do it. <laughs> All right. Most people come out just fine on the other oh, end. <laughs> Nothing to worry about. Okay. Okay. So again, this is a series of questions on a variety of topics. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim for the most part is to ask the question and kind of stand aside. Okay. So, okay. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. <laughs> Life is like a invitation to participate more deeply. Hmm. 
Okay. Question number two, what's something you've changed your mind about in the last few years? I would say it's not changing my mind, but it was opening up to just how important interconnected and interdependence um, qualities are not so much biologically in the natural world, because thanks to a lot of great teachers, I got, I got that very strongly over, over the last 30 years, but in, in relationships and um, whether that's a, a group that I volunteer with or whether it's my marriage, um, that is so important to understand. And, and probably it, I had a blind spot by virtue of growing up a, a, a fairly privileged white male um, you know, in the, in the sixties and seventies, I, I just didn't really put much attention to that, but I, I do think that one way I've opened up and one way my life is more satisfying now is to give full measure, uh, and, and full importance to that, to that truth, the, the, the value and the beauty and the power of, of our interdependence. All right. Thank you. Question number three. Now, this might be a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a T-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Reclaim your human nature. Awesome. Okay. Question number four. What book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Probably. Oh, gosh. Can I say, well, it's, you, I just have to pick one. Hmm. No, it's okay if it's more than one. All right. I'll say two. Okay. Refuge by Terry Tempest Williams, first. Secondly, Where Rivers Change Direction by Mark Sprague. This is the one about wolves, isn't it? No, that is uh, that col- is a collection of autobiographical essays about him growing up on a ranch in Wyoming uh, back in the 60s and, and, and 70s and 80s. And it's it's beautifully done. Mark is an extraordinarily gifted writer. And uh, if... If you haven't read that one, I, I couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, and, and of course, Refuge is, is just fantastic. I'm not familiar with either of those books, but I'm grateful to make their acquaintance. So thank you for that. Yes. And Terry Tempest Williams has Utah connections. Indeed, she does. Yes. Yes. Why, why Refuge? Why is this a, an important book for you? Um, I think Terry did an extraordinary job. In, in my mind, in my reading of it, in opening up her relationship to family and to the natural world and to the wounds that that people have inflicted on themselves by um, not treating relationships, not treating the natural world as well as they could, that it had a very, I, I've been talking a lot about the, the archetypal feminine and whatnot, but it had a sense of the power of feminine and the power of relational. Again, these are qualities that live in men too, but it lit me up in that, in that way. Uh, so it wasn't just the poetry of her language, which is often just really impressive, but it was the, it was the power that she revealed by virtue of the relationship she focused on. Wow. What are you reading right now? Well, I'm reading the rereading, actually, The Death of Nature by Carolyn Merchant, which came out in, uh, I think it was 1980. I hope I'm not misstating that. And that is a really, really interesting read if um, your, your uh, audience is interested. 
she's one of those academics that crosses every T and dots every I and has footnotes just everywhere. So it, it for a nerdy reader, which I often am, it was wonderful. But she really goes back to some of what happened in that era of, of Enlightenment science and talks about not just this objectification that we were able to um, entrench, but also um, the, the fate of uh, the feminine perspective, the female perspective, and how that kind of accented the, uh, the blind spots that we, we created through that objectification. So it's, it's, really, it's really quite marvelous. Um, gives me a, a stronger sense of understanding of how we got where we are today. Wow. All right. Thank you. Um, question number five. So this has to do with travel. I know in your life and your work, you've traveled a lot. What's one thing you do, maybe a travel hack, something you do or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I, I just immediately went to um, a good book uh, because I love when I'm on the plane to, to read. But you know, to be honest, one of the things I take with me is a, a commitment to sort of centering myself whenever I arrive in a new place, quietly let the world I left go and try to cultivate essentially what some uh, spiritual leaders have called the um, beginner's mind. So that when I do see what's around me, and this is especially true in a, in a foreign country, um, I'm not caught up in that uh, incessant noise of comparing what I'm seeing to what I know. And, you know, I have to judge it. Is this weird? Is this good? But just simply being a child back in that that garden of wildflowers with the bees hovering over it in my in my mom's garden uh, and, and being drawn into it. And so that's not a physical object, but I really do try to carry that commitment with me when I travel. Well, I'll bet that's uh, part of what would make you a great travel companion. Oh, I, well, let's go somewhere anytime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Always ready. I, I've traveled with people in, in places like Asia where they just want to find the next McDonald's. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> so, okay. Question um, number six, what's one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I have not entirely stopped, but I'm working on stopping living in the future, mm. uh, anticipating, or let's be honest, I should say worrying about uh, these things that may or, or may not happen. Because it's true, as you mentioned earlier, it's only ever today. And that's where life happens. It can't happen in the past and it can't happen in the future. And Every time I walk out in the natural world, I'm reminded of that because that's how that's how nature is is existing. So I really am trying to stop. I had a, a pretty feverish tendency in my younger years to um, get all worked up about things that might or might not happen. And um, it, it really is a, a way that I, I felt ultimately that I was missing my life. Wow. Well, good that you've recognized that now and not. 20 years from now. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I'm getting old. And it reminds me of that thing by Twain of, uh, about I'm an old man and I've known many troubles, most of which have never come to pass. <laughs> That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. That's great. Okay. Um, question number seven. What's, what's one thing you wish every American knew? 
Um, one thing that just comes to my mind in this moment is I, I wish every American knew how significant, in, in somewhat flawed ways, agreeably, but admittedly, but how significant the natural world was to our sense of who we are as Americans. You know, way back in the mid 1700s, you, you've got um, pundits calling unkempt wilderness the great equalizer. And it was really significant because they realized, well, you, you go out in the wilderness, it doesn't matter how much money you have or how much blue in your blood or what your reputation is, who your connections are. Wilderness gives us both the blessings and, and the risks of being there completely equally. And that became a foundation for when we did become a country for just a, an avalanche of imagery that we used on our state flags, pine cones, birds, feathers, you know, all, all sorts of things to identify ourselves as uh, as related to nature. And one last example of that, when Lewis and Clark were heading out to the Pacific Ocean, the big debate among progressive and orthodox clergy uh, alike back on the Atlantic seaboard was, is nature the hand and voice of God or is nature God himself? And so the, this is the sort of um, foundation that we stood on. Um, the Boy Scout handbook in the early 20th century outsold every other book in the country except the Bible. I mean, we, we really, really have kept turning to the natural world to identify ourselves and to, uh, I think, generate the, the, that famous sense of American optimism and so forth has 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 its roots to some extent on our relationship with the land. And uh, that's that's very comforting and empowering to, to me. So that's what I would wish. Awesome. Thank you. I, I had no idea about the Boy Scout handbook too. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. You know, my dad gave me, by the way, he gave me, he had uh, the Lewis and Clark journals and it's like, I think it's 14 volumes and then a book of maps. And when he passed, he, he gave me that. So I, I haven't read it yet, but maybe at some point I'll dig in. Oh, that's what a wonderful gift. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Okay. So question number eight, we've talked a lot about relationships. This question is about relationships. What's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work? Um, to cultivate the ability to listen to someone without giving in to either the urge to pigeonhole them by virtue of what I think they're hearing or draw up on stories. I think I know about them. Uh, you know, it's one we all make stories about each other, but at the point, my story about you comes into conflict with what you're really trying to tell me at, at, the, at the moment. I insist that, Oh, I know who you are and where you're coming from instead of truly, truly listening without any connection to those old stories about who I think you are, then um, I think relationships can, can come forward. You feel respected as, as a speaker that I'm truly listening to you and I get to learn from you and I get to adjust my story of who you are based on, on um, what you've just told me. And so that, that ability to participate in each other's unfolding and each other's becoming um, is, is really, I think, essential. Uh, so it all comes down to listening, listening without too many stories running in the background. Mm, I, I love that. And as you talk and, and I hear you talk about how listening in that, in that way can help one feel respected. 
I'm reminded, I recently read that the, the etymology of respect is to look again. Oh, so, yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. interesting that you say that, like listening newly, looking, yeah. actually, you know? Yes. Right, right, right. That's perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> okay. Last question here is about money. Um, what's, aside from compound interest, what is the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? I, I, I think money is... Um, especially in this culture, which, which can elevate it to um, near religious levels, it can play in so easily to the notion um, that we talked about before, where if I can control these individual things and these physical laws, then I can be in control of my life. Uh, money, I think, promises control. Uh, but in fact, it, it, it can't save us from the grief and the losses and all the other stuff we have. And while it can buy lots of distractions, that really only adds to our feeling of uh, inadequacy and our fear about what life's really about. So I, I'm increasingly enjoying, and perhaps this is a function of, of, of being as old as I am, of uh, putting money out there to sustain uh, relationships or support things that I really believe in that, that mm -hmm. it's energy, that money yeah. is energy. And so how does that energy best get applied? Is it, if I, if I hoard it, then the energy stops, then the flow yeah. stops. But if I can help support things that I really believe in, um, then, then the rivers keep running. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. And, uh, it reminds me of something, someone you might know, do you know, Lynn twist? I know the name. Yes. Yes. She's a founder of the Pachamama Alliance and she's written a book called the soul of money. And, and just what you're talking about, if we hoard it, the energy stops. She pointed out to me that that's why we call it currency because it wants to flow. Oh, wow. I, I have never heard that. Yeah. Isn't that's that interesting? Quite, quite wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then early when you were talking about money, how we often esteem it to the point of like deify it. I'm reminded of what Joseph Campbell in the power of myth when he's in a conversation with Bill Moyers and he pointed out, he said, you can tell what any society values by what its tallest buildings are. Oh, right. yes. That's yeah. amazing. Right. In older times, it was maybe the churches or maybe in some communities, the university or whatever, but in our modern cities, the financial towers. Oh, it's so true. You know, I remember uh, in the Yellowstone archives when I was doing some research, stumbling across this journal that was written by, I, I suspect he was around 18 or 19 years old and he came from the East and he was just on an adventure and he was traipsing around Yellowstone with basically a peck slung on his back and happy as could be. And somebody uh, along the way stopped to talk with him. And one of his lines was, um, and, and he appeared quite poor in the way he was dressed. But he said, I'm richer than E.H. Harriman, who was a big financer and industrialist of the time. He said, I'm richer than E.H. Harriman. I've got all the money I want. And he doesn't. Wow. <laughs> that's powerful. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Well, all right. Well, congratulations. You survived the lightning lightning round. Wow. Well, by the skin of my teeth, perhaps. Yeah, you, yeah, you that was fun. It. And that last question there about money. Speaking of money, one of the things... I've done an, an attempt to express my gratitude to you for sharing so generously of your wisdom and your experience today is I've made a hundred dollar micro loan to a woman in, she's in Moldova. She's a 41 year old. Her name is Rodika and she works as a cook in a local winery. 
and she will use this money actually for beehives and oh. then in that way support that, you you've made my whole week that's that's beautiful that's yeah, isn't that really cool? lovely thank you yeah i love um i'm sure you know paul hawken yes yes i do paul um was very generous in in supporting our full ecology book and our work that we're doing so yes i'm a big fan of paul yeah he's amazing and i love he he i've heard him say that poverty doesn't want to be fixed poverty wants to fix itself Oh, yeah. that's wonderful. Yeah. And self-sufficiency and so forth. And, and I like think that these micro loans, which I won't receive any interest, but the field partner who administers them will. So hopefully in that way, this will be a virtuous cycle that our conversation will in some way have lent some energy to. So, oh, yeah, that just puts a smile on my face. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, the last the last part of our interview here, and I'll just check in with you and ask how you're doing. If you oh, want to take a break or if you're good yeah. to go for another 20 minutes or so. Sure. Okay. So the last part of the conversation here, I just have a few questions about writing and the creative process. And uh, again, as a reminder that I think, I hope that people listening, many of them are their writers or aspiring writers. Great. So they can learn from you both examples and maybe gain some inspiration that will help them in their own, in their own projects. Terrific. So I'll start by asking, when did you, when did you first know you were a writer? Well, I, I started keeping journals probably about the age of 13 or 14, writing some poetry. Of course, it was the typical journal of kind of pouring my heart out about different things or uh, celebrating adventures that I'd had or whatnot. And um, I, I think as I closed out my high school years, I began thinking more seriously about how satisfying I found writing. And then by the time I got to college, I was an environmental science major. I was not a, a writing major. I knew if later I was going to apply myself to being a writer, I wanted to write about the natural world. I, that, that, was, that was what I wanted to focus mostly on. And so almost all of my 27 books have been about the natural world in one form or another. But one of the things I think that appealed to me early on about writing is that I, I, I had a difficult time picking just one path for, for life. You know, okay, I'm going to be a, an engineer or I'm going to be a lawyer or I'm going to just, it was hard for me to imagine picking one path and writing had the potential and it has delivered in spades of going out in all kinds of different circumstances, talking to all kinds of different people, living uh, through them, uh, uh, different lives. And so it's, it's been, it's been extraordinarily satisfying for me who, who has so many different interests to be able to, to pursue them. The other thing is writing has really been good for an essential quality of, of what I think makes for a, a, a good life for me. And that's to be able to continue to break the frames that we build around how we think the world works. I've never spent time with somebody during a book project or for that matter, gone into nature where I didn't come back, where the frame that I had around the world, as far as what I thought was true reality, didn't get broken and reassembled in some larger, more expansive fashion. And so writing has, has been very, very um, good for, for me on that, on that level. Um, and I, I, I'm a sucker for a beautiful sentence, a beautiful paragraph, beautiful story. And uh, so it's, it's, it's something you never achieve. 
you know, total excellence. There's no finish line as a writer, yeah. but um, it's uh, it keeps you in the company, I think, of uh, of powerful and, and, and beautiful thoughts. Yeah, I, that's been my experience as well. And I love what you're saying about there's no finish line as a writer. And I think I mean, that's something that I have previously believed that I've been disabused of that belief that I think many people think, oh, when I get this draft done or even when I get it published right. or something. But then I've heard someone say books are never done. Books are never finished. They're only published. <laughs> That's I agree. I agree. I can't pick up any book without reading. And going, oh, I should have done that instead. But yeah, yeah, yeah they're not finished. They're published. <laughs> what um, who has been influential in your development as a writer and and how or what have you learned from them? Well, starting uh, early on when I did decide to be a writer, which was in my last couple of years of college, um, I, I started going to writers conferences and, 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 and workshops. And, you know, writers are often introverts and myself included. And so there is a reluctance or sometimes a resistance to go into social settings uh, for a variety of reasons. But the fact of the matter is those uh, helped get me grounded. I started to at least understand the mechanics of, oh, if I don't submit a story idea that I've got for a magazine in this accepted format known as a query, which adheres to very strict rules, and I just keep sending the stories in, I'm probably never going to get published. But it didn't have anything to do necessarily with quality of the writing. It's that there's a, a, a formula, if you will, about how to communicate your ideas. And so to learn those sorts of nuts and bolts was, was essential. Um, I, if I had to do it over again, I would do even more of those kinds of workshops. I taught for 10 years in a in a master's of fine arts, uh, low residency program uh, at Pacific Lutheran University, Rainier Writing Workshop. And that really helped me see through my students fast and deep progression that, again, having somebody who's a little better than you, a little wiser in the ways of the writing world, um, who can convey essential ideas about technique, H having those people in your life um, helps you lift off ultimately. I again, no such thing as a rugged individual. Yeah, that's right. And right back to that about community. Um, I want to go back to the thing you said about when you decided to be a writer in your last few years of college, was there a moment, like a specific memory you have of when you kind of closed the door to other possibilities and committed to this? Or was it a gradual thing or what, what was that like? Um, the, the thing I associate with it is I had a, a wonderful, um, I, I, I only took perhaps three or four creative writing classes in college. The last one I took was taught by a, a TA, a teacher's assistant um, named Art Tadras. And I'd love to see if he's still around, but I, I went to Art and I said, Art, I, I'm, I'm thinking of really trying to make this happen as a, as a writer. And he said, it's an exceedingly difficult path, but I think you you can do it. I think you've got the ability to do it. And so with that confidence that art put in me sort of in my pocket, I just decided, okay, what do I need to do? And I immediately started going around, finding out who the writers were in the Midwest that weren't too far away, calling them, asking if I could visit with them and you know what, what they had to say as far as advice. But it was it was art's encouragement that really, I, I think, gave me the confidence to, to take the first steps. 
Uh, that's that's really beautiful, and I'm reminded. I, I this is like the interconnectedness, the web of of life or existence. How both it, sometimes that's us who needs that, and at other times it's us who can give that. Yes, kind of yeah. encouragement or confidence to another person. And in many cases, I'm convinced we don't even know. You know, we have no idea what our lives really are <laughs> or the impact they have yeah. on those us. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've seen it in a couple of my students who were really quite talented, but didn't have any sense of their own talent at all. And for me to, to pass that on what art passed to me, uh, you can see it in their faces. It, it lights them up and, 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 and gives them a stature to, to keep going. It's, it's very powerful what we give to others. And that's the definition really in a lot of cultures of elderhood is to be able to kind of empower um, the community, uh, the people of the community and not worry about you know, yourself quite so much, how, how it's going to reflect on you or what, what goodies or riches you're going to get from it. Yeah, that's cool. So for someone who has taught for more than 10 years and who has written nearly 30 books and so much more beyond that, I don't want to, I don't want to trivialize this question. Right. But um, I want to ask, like, what do you say? Like, what, are, what are the broad strokes of what you say in that opening class to, to these people who either think they, they are writers or they want to be writers? Like what's in your first five minutes of that kind of lecture or that opening? I teach literary nonfiction. So it's not so much hard journalism or, 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 or news writing. And that's a very different thing. It, so what I first point out and, and, allow them to savor for a while is the fact that I and they are all storytellers and that their calling to write, uh, and even if they want to make it a profession, is really about being a storyteller. The, the writing happens to be the mechanism by which the stories are told as opposed to film or, or other media, but they really are storytellers. And with that in mind, I also share something that I've loved for a long time from Rumi, a piece of advice. He said, sell your cleverness and buy bewilderment. And so if for all the technical stuff we'll do, and I'll get to that in a minute, if you can go into your writing again with that sense of wonder, that beginner's mind, that confusion, that actually, that energy will help you arrive at a kind of truth that wants to be released in that storytelling. Now, after I say that, I also tell a real brief um, anecdote from John Coltrane, the, the, the great uh, jazz uh, saxophone player from the, from the primarily 40s and 50s. He went on in the early days of television on a talk show in the United Kingdom and the, the host was just so excited to have him there because he was by far the best saxophonist and maybe is to this day in the world. Uh, and um, the, the, the host was just tripping all over himself saying, oh, Mr. Coltrane, what I really want to know is how do you improvise so beautifully? You just, you know, you'll be on a melodic line and then you'll go off and improvise and take us to universes we never imagined. And then somehow you find your way back to the melodic line. And Coltrane starts giving this, just 
boring, horrifically long, tedious answer about, oh, well, when I was 11, uh, I had these syncopation exercises and I had to do them every day. And this is what they looked like. And then he went on and on and on about all this, these technique uh, uh, traditions that he was taught. And it was just bad. And even for early television, that host knew, oh, this is this is not good, good TV. And then finally, after about 10 minutes of rambling on like that, um, Coltrane leans forward and puts his hands on his knees and looks right in the eyes of the interviewer and says, and then you forget all that crap and you just wail. <laughs> and so I tell my students, th this isn't, I'm telling the story because you have to do all of that tedium. You have to do those, those exercises. You, you have to get good at the mechanics of putting words together. And then at some point your voice begins to emerge and then you can really begin to break the very rules that you've been taught and start to wail. That's, that's such a great example. That's <laughs> if it's good enough for John Coltrane, I'm, I'm in. That's awesome. Thank you. How has your process of writing a book changed over the years? Like, what does your process look like now? And, and maybe how is it different from how it used to be? I, I used to have everything fairly well outlined before I started. And by the way, if you're selling a nonfiction book, you sell it by virtue of a proposal. And so you will have to outline, you will have to describe what every chapter is going to be about. Doesn't mean that's what the book ends up being, but in order for the editor and the marketing department to get a handle on what you're suggesting and to analyze whether they think they can sell it, you have to define it fairly clearly. I would also, when I started writing, go ahead and write to that outline. <clears throat> and anymore, I'm, I'm very comfortable with not knowing um, exactly where it's going with not starting at the beginning, which I always, always used to do, um, thinking that if I didn't have that foundation set, I wouldn't know where the story was going to go, but rather either start way out, um, maybe in an area where uh, I know the book is going to get to toward the end of it, start with that, and then write to it. Or if I'm really confused, I'm very comfortable with just if I know certain scenes that are going to be in the book, certain events, then just take all the pressure off and write those scenes. Um, and, and don't worry about where they fit. Don't worry about how they're assembled. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to seduce or lure myself into the story uh, without that feeling of, oh, my gosh, this task is so imposing. You know, wow. I got a, I've got 300 and some pages to go and ee, the first sentence is, uh, is, is really daunting. The other thing that I've always used to my benefit is I think it's better if you can write a short period every day or five days a week than to have <clears throat> one weekend a month where you can just throw yourself into it. There, there's, a, there's a kind of inertia that can set in if the, if the writing periods are too widely spaced. And so I think even a little writing uh, regularly is probably more, at least for me, more successful than um, a, a big chunk of writing time once a month. Yeah. So I, I write every morning, uh, typically, um, even if I'm traveling from, oh, eight o'clock to one, and then I'll break and I'll do marketing stuff or emails or read research or whatever, and then try to try to also fuse in enough time to get outside. 
know, to, uh, to be reminded of why I'm doing this. Yeah, that's great. Do you ever, or how have you overcome? Cause I, I understand one place that many writers get tripped up and I certainly have myself as well is that, um, I'll find myself when I maybe should be drafting that I get caught in this cycle of editing. And of course, editing could be an endless process, but how do you, if you do, how do you separate and treat the drafting versus the editing portion of a writing project? That is such an important question. And I was the worst at just getting lost in, in editing. I could, I could spend a three hour writing block. I'm going to start that again. Okay. <coughs> Sorry about that. No worries. Yeah, I could easily spend several hours just trying to tweak a couple paragraphs. And this especially showed itself when I was trying to come up with the perfect metaphor. Writers, are, stock and trade is, is, is metaphor. And so I would stare out the window for an hour waiting for just the right metaphor. The morning feels like or looks like blank. And what I learned to do finally, because there was never a chance to get momentum going. The energy of the story itself that underlies what I was doing kept getting truncated by virtue of me spending all the time in the ditch trying to come up with perfect metaphor. So what I learned to do is just put a cliche in. After five minutes, if I didn't have the right metaphor, put a cliche in with a couple of asterisks and move on just to keep that flow going. And then when you put your editor's hat on, which is a very different relationship to your writing than the writing hat, then I could go back and, and examine those missing pieces and, and really see um, what might be the, the best solution. The other thing I tell writers is I, I found it early on, I don't do it so much anymore, very helpful to once I thought I had something to a pretty good level, read it out loud into a tape recorder or the voice memo on your iPhone or whatever, and then play it back to yourself. To me, writing is, is music. There's a musicality to writing. And wow. if you read it, you'll, you'll not only hear awkward word choices and bad metaphors, but you'll also hear whether or not it has that, that musicality to it, whether it breathes uh, across several pages. And uh, so that, that really was helpful to me. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I have a guest. Um, I interviewed Dom Robertson, who said that he actually paid someone in his neighborhood to come and read his manuscript to him. And it was oh, like eight hours, but <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah. And then another guest told me, and I use this sometimes of um, on Word, that Word actually has a read aloud feature. Right. I've not used it, but I, I know it's there. That's a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Because of course we know more and more we can dictate to our devices, but that to have them read our own text back to us. And it's still a little bit of a robotic voice, but you can speed it up or slow it down or change oh. the voice and so forth. And I've caught a few things that were, that either just didn't sound right or flat out typos that I didn't see reading it on the screen. Yeah. 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 You know, one, one of the uh, books, um, when you asked me what I was reading besides the death of nature I'm reading right now is I love Isabel Allende and her latest novel is Violetta and she uses semicolon, which some editors are really uh, against, but she uses them as an artist. And when you read her writing, you can really see how the grammar 
uh, she chooses. Is this going to be a period? Am I going to break with a couple of asterisks when I come to the end of a, a certain thought to let the reader exhale? Am I going to lengthen the pause with a semicolon? I, I mean, these sound like the minutiae John Coltrane was talking about, but they collectively really add up and, and help you create the rhythm that your, your writing deserves. Yeah. And it's all part of a style too, right? We all have or can develop or discover. It reminds me, I came across online a few months ago. Um, Someone had taken um, works. These were all in the public domain. So a little bit older now, but he had removed all the words and left only the punctuation. And you could look at uh, an entire book and it would have the title at the top and then just the punctuation on a whole poster. And it was cool. Wow. That really has my mind going. I'd love to see that. That was pretty interesting. So, okay. So the last few things here, um, I'm, I want to turn a little bit to marketing, promotion, sales of books, um, partly because somebody, somebody pointed out to me once that a New York Times bestseller it doesn't say New York Times best writer. <laughs> it's a seller, which is Ooh, kind of interesting. Good point. Good point. And, then, and then the other thing is um, a teacher of mine, Jack Canfield, the guy Ooh. who chicken soup for the soul. Sure. He introduced me to the idea that if we write our books and then we just expect that someone else will sell it or that people will somehow find it, that we're likely to be sorely disappointed because most of us write for someone to read, right? And hopefully yeah. to have a difference in the world in some way. But with all that as background, I'll just ask you, what have you learned about marketing and selling a book that has helped you or that has been challenging to you? Like what, what have you discovered about book sales and marketing? Well, I, I cannot agree more with your premise about the mistake that happens when you think somebody else and what Jack was saying about somebody else taking responsibility for the dirty work of selling. I certainly thought the same thing through the first five or six books I did. I I did the best I could do. And then another team member was supposed to come in and take over the responsibility for selling it. And everybody would be happy and uh, the tide would rise and we'd all sail away. Um, not true. Uh, it was 30 years ago, essential that the writer take responsibility for selling a book. And now it's more essential than ever. There are very, very few writers left who get any kind of book tours. Things are done through social media. Uh, things are done through interviews with uh, you know various uh, shows devoted either to the topic or to the subject of writing. Um, to the extent you can have your friends and your connections and contacts on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram share um, what you're doing, the better off you are. And and there are, of course, ways to boost those posts by paying for ads. But it, it all, to be honest, that level that has come on so strong through social media in the last 15 years has just left my head spinning. But the fact of the matter is, all of us, if we believe that what we've done can be and perhaps should be shared, if we were writing so that people would read it, if that's the act of community that is driving who we are as writers, and I, I believe it is, then just swallow hard and and learn those rudiments of uh, social media. Um, do all you can to um, have a good web page. Make sure that people who are influencers or who are in the media um, get an opportunity uh, kindly and with a, a short glimpse of what you're doing and, and can become an advocate for, for what you're doing, because it's going to be that community that either 
either allows the book to sell or, or doesn't. This is not the time anymore where, again, New York publishers, which is mostly what I work with, they're not taking out quarter page ads in the New York Times to you know, advertise mid-level writers. That's just not not happening. And so more and more to the responsibility, there are things now called satellite radio tours that you can set up where you basically sit at your home and either through Zoom or a phone, um, get in touch with lots and lots of uh, folks who are doing shows that are looking for guests who are writers. Those There are media guides out there that can point the way to where those people are, where those shows are, just like uh, where to sell your books and where to sell your magazine articles can be supported by books like the Writer's Market and the Writer's Handbook, thousands and thousands of potential markets in those handbooks. So become familiar with those things and, and put those on your shelf and use them uh, often. Awesome. Thank you for that. Thanks for breaking that down. Uh, I would just ask as maybe a final question, um, what advice or encouragement would you leave people listening with? That would help them either develop the momentum that we've talked about, you know, or get unstuck if they are stuck or just begin <laughs> if it's only a dream they've been harboring. What, what do you say to people to help them get their own projects across the finish line? A, a couple of things. I, I heard um, I, a lovely comment by a, a woman writer who I met who declared, and I think it's true, the first draft of anything is, is crap. Okay. And it doesn't matter if you're Mark Twain or if you're Terry Tempest Williams or who you are. It's, it's going to be not that good. So I, I acknowledge that because I think sometimes, especially when you're first starting out as a writer, what's in your head is so beautiful and what lands on the screen is so mediocre at best. But that's part of the process. Good writing is good editing. So really devote yourself to going back carefully, patiently and editing and make that mediocre writing good, but don't expect it to come out good in the first place. The other a bit more philosophical thing I'd say is Robert Frost once said an interesting thing to me. He said, most of the changes we think we see in society are just old truths coming in and out of favor. Mm. I think writers are about telling truths that come in and out of favor in their lives. A lot of what you write over the course of your life is going to be about what is most true to you, what elicits the most passion and commitment in you, uh, enthusiasm. And so the more you can really be with yourself and come to know yourself and to get in touch and welcome, embrace those truths, I think the more power you're going to have in your writing, but also the more clear it will become, how can I pick a project? How can I define a project that will be valuable out there in the world? The more you know what's in here, the more likely you are to pick a path that will link it to, to other people. That makes sense. That makes sense. Awesome. Well, Gary, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Me too, um, Brian. Thank you. Yeah, I loved reading the eight master lessons of nature. So thank you for that. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing this conversation with my community. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I All will right. look forward to the time we connect again next. Sounds great. Be well, take care. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the school for good living podcast. Before you take off, just want to extend an invitation to you. 
Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.